Well, finally, he could put up his feet and enjoy himself. I mean, the last several years had been brutal. Family conflict, moving away from mom and dad, now a new place, new digs, then getting married twice, uh, going into business with his father-in-law, more conflict. But all that was now behind him. He had taken his young family and moved on so that he could be closer to his parents. Thankfully, he, he brought with him a, a significant amount of, of, of wealth, and so he started his own business. He, he had built his dream home. I mean, life was good. Everything was comfortable and secure. Finally, he could kick back and relax, or so he thought. What he didn't realize was that just below the surface of this feeling of security was lurking a power that would nearly take down his entire family. You know, what is it about comfort and security that seem to lull us to sleep, spiritually speaking? I mean, it's funny. We, we spend so much of our lives trying to get to this place of relational or, or financial security. And, and what we don't realize is that that place of comfort and security can actually be spiritually dangerous. We, we often don't see it until it's too late. Well, if you have your Bible or iPad or whatever, please turn to Genesis chapter 33. Uh, welcome to all of our campuses, Zoe's and Traditions. We're glad you're joining us as well. We are, we are just starting a teaching series in the book of Genesis. A few years ago, we began walking through this amazing book, and we made our way to chapter 33, but then we took a break from this book to focus on some other topics, but, but I always had in, in my mind the idea that we would eventually come back to this book and, and continue our track through it. So that's, that's what's happening here. For the next several weeks, we're going to be focusing on the remaining chapters of, of this book. And the, the primary storyline is the story of Joseph. But there is a backdrop to this story that we need to look at. It's found in Genesis 33 to 35, and it involves his dad, Jacob. Now, let me just say right up front that this story here is brutal. It's, it's PG-13+. plus. Most preachers just skip this section because it is so out there. Um, they don't really know what to do with it. But I don't want us to skip it because I believe there's a critically important message here for us. This message has to do with our relationship with the world, now, I'm not talking about the world in terms of our missional call to love the lost and help people find Jesus. That, that, I mean, that's a given around here. What I'm talking about, when I'm talking about the word world in this message, I'm talking about the system and the values of the world. Another word for this is worldliness. There is a destructive power all around us that is aggressively trying to destroy us spiritually. In John, 1 John 2, verses 15 and 16, we are given a powerful definition of worldliness. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. Notice the definition of worldliness. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. In other words, money, sex, and power. I mean, worldliness involves this quest, this lust for things, for sexual pleasure, for power and control. 
That's the system of the world. And as John tells us here, it is completely opposed to God's heart and God's will for us. It is a power and it is continually trying to pull us in to wreak havoc, to bring destruction, which raises an obvious problem. We live in this world. <laughs> we live in this world. So how do we live in this world without getting pulled into the destructive values and behaviors that it embraces? Well, that's really what this story in Genesis 34 is ultimately about. Now, let me quickly summarize what has happened to this point in the book. In Genesis 12, God calls Abraham to be the father of the nation of Israel. He calls him out of idolatry and into this covenant relationship, inviting Abraham to trust him. And so Abe does. He walks with God. There's a problem, however. Abraham and Sarah are are childless, and they happen to be AARP members, okay? They're, they're getting up there. I mean, Abe is 90 years old, and so this promise to be the father of a nation doesn't seem to be working, but God miraculously gives them a child. They name him Isaac. Isaac grows up. He gets married to Rebecca, and they have twins. Esau comes out first, and then Jacob well, Esau grows up to be a man's man. I mean, he's hairy, he hunts, he probably has a shotgun and a Confederate flag in the back of his truck, he watches Duck Dynasty. I mean, Esau is dad's favorite. Isaac loves Esau, but he doesn't love Jacob, who hates to hunt and be outdoors. Jacob prefers to, prefers to stay inside and play video games or whatever. Okay, now, now th this parental favoritism wreaks havoc in these boys' hearts, especially Jacob. He grows up with this father wound, desperately looking for love and approval. When Isaac is well along in years, Jacob dresses up like Esau, and he tricks his dad into giving him the firstborn blessing, which was a big deal. When Esau found out about it, he was livid. And so Jacob has to flee for his life. His mom urges him to go to the area where her family lives. And so he does. And on the way, Jacob has an encounter with God at a place called Bethel. It's very important, part of our story today. He makes a vow that he is going to return there someday. That's an important part of the story here. He vows to come back to Bethel. So he goes then to live with his mom's extended family. He ends up marrying two daughters of a man named Laban. That's a long story. You can read about it some other time. And so they start having children, and these children eventually become the 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob works for his father-in-law, Laban, and he does quite well financially, but there are conflicts. And so one day, God tells Jacob to return to the land that he had come from. In other words, Go back to Bethel, where his covenant relationship with God began. So he packs up his wives and kids and livestock, and he heads back. This is where our story picks up. Genesis 33, verses 18 to 20. After Jacob came from Paddan Aram, he arrived safely at the city of Shechem in Canaan and camped within sight of the city. For a hundred pieces of silver, he bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, the plot of ground where he pitched his tent. There he set up an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. 
Okay, so Jacob and his family arrive safely. He picks a great piece of land with an awesome view of Shechem. It's a it's beautiful country. He even builds an altar as a way to honor God, you know, for all for his faithfulness of bringing him here. I mean, life is good. Finally, Jacob can relax. But there's a problem that's going to become very obvious in a moment. Shechem is a very bad place. It represents the worldliness that we talked about earlier. We're going to see money, sex, and power all exerting their influence, just like in our society. And in this story, God's people, i.e. Jacob and his family, don't handle it very well. They don't respond to this worldliness in a healthy way, and it nearly destroys them. We can learn a lot from their example in terms of how not to respond to worldly influences. So let's dive into this fairly wild story. The fact that Jacob chooses to settle just outside the city of Shechem is a very significant issue, and here is why. As I mentioned a few moments ago, Jacob had years earlier made a vow to return to Bethel, not Shechem. And God had confirmed that vow when he told Jacob to return to the land. So as Jacob is on his way to Bethel, he stops at Shechem, several miles short of Bethel. And he decides to live there. Why? Well, it's a beautiful country. He has a nice view of the city. It's very near some significant trade routes, so there was financial benefit. But the problem is, that's not where he's supposed to be. And what we see here is the first of several unhealthy responses to worldliness. And that response is compromise. In his quest for comfort and and financial security, Jacob compromises. He settles for something less than God wanted. The lure of Shechem, the lure of the location of Shechem caused Jacob to compromise. Now, we may look at this and think, so what? I mean, what's a few miles? We're just talking, you know, a different geographical location, big deal. Actually, as we're going to see, that minor decision set in motion a chain of events that would cause significant pain and devastation. And, And that's how worldliness works. It 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 it's looking for just a little opening. A small entry point, that's all it needs, because once it's in, it wreaks havoc. Jacob knew what God wanted him to do. He knew exactly where God wanted him to live, but he willingly chose something short of that. It's what we might call almost obedience. Almost obedience. It's it's 80% obedience. I'm sure Jacob had all sorts of excuses and rationalizations lined up about why this was okay, just like we all do, right? Why it's okay to sleep with our girlfriend. We love each other anyway. Why it's okay to have an abortion. Why it's okay to withhold the reporting of some income on our taxes. Why it's okay to look at porn. I mean, it's not hurting anyone, right? Why it's okay to not tithe to the Lord. We compromise whenever we lower the bar. 
When, when we know what God wants us to do, but we choose to settle for less than that, we choose an almost is good enough response. Almost obedience. Usually these decisions to compromise, they don't seem very significant at the time. They don't. It just seems like a little thing. But they open a door for the world's influence to eventually pour in, which is what we see in this story. That one decision by Jacob to compromise was like the proverbial little rock that caused the landslide, right? It, it was just a little rock, but once it moved, it, it started a massive and destructive chain of events, which leads to Genesis 34, verse 1, where we see another unhealthy response to worldliness. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, had, the daughter Leah had born to Jacob, went out to visit the women of the land. When Shechem, son of Hamor, the Hivite, the ruler of that area, saw her, he took her and raped her. His heart was drawn to Dinah, daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. And Shechem said to his father, Hamor, get me this girl as my wife. This is such a tragic incident. The, the original language is clear. This is not consensual. This is brutal, abusive rape. Shechem saw her, took her, and raped her. He used her as an object to get what he wanted. This is about lust, it's about power, it's about brutality. Now, now, we read here that afterwards he, he, he loves her and speaks tenderly to her. I mean, what a total jerk who knows nothing about genuine love. If he loved her, he wouldn't have violated her. Ladies, guys will do anything to get what they want. They'll say anything to get what they want. If your boyfriend is telling you, if you love me, you'll let me have sex with you, he doesn't love you. He doesn't love you. True love is committed to honoring God and honoring this person. It's what's best for this person. That's what love is. It's not about my, my needs being met. True love is willing to wait. Okay, so we know exactly what's in Shechem's heart. It's worldliness. It's lust, I, what he wants, okay? But, but I want to highlight a particular response, because we already know what Shechem is all about, right? That's worldliness. But I want to highlight a particular response that leads up to this point. It's what I would call naivete. And it's something that all of us are vulnerable to. Verse 1 says that Dinah went out to visit the women of the land. She's probably 16 years old. Something around there, 14, 15, 16, something like that. And, and we all certainly understand her desire to get out and, and to see more of the world. But, but by doing so in Shechem, she is putting herself in danger. She is being very naive. She's being very unwise. Now, please hear me here. I am not blaming her for the rape. I'm not, as I've already said. Shechem was a total loser and he should be in jail. Period, okay? That's done. My point here is, and this is for all of us here, how often do we naively put ourselves in situations that are unwise? How often do we turn off our discernment meter and just kind of go along with the crowd on something? 
Maybe it's a business trip and the other employees are going out for some drinks that evening. But you know where that could lead. Some sexual advances, a trip to a strip club. But you say yes anyway. You want to be with the gang or whatever. You say yes anyway. Or maybe it's a party that you've been invited to with lots of cool people from school, but you know what's going to be going on there. Marijuana, drinking. I mean, even if you don't plan on participating in this stuff, the environment is one filled with vulnerability. All sorts of people around who are getting high and getting drunk. I mean, the odds of sexual assault and irrational behavior, violence and sexual temptation are exponentially increased in that environment. In 10 minutes, the trajectory of your entire life could change in a place like that. Why put yourself even near that, anywhere near that environment? We need to guard against being naive when it comes to the things of the world. Be wise, be discerning. Which leads to a third unhealthy response, and that's the response of passivity. Passivity. If you're anything like me, you read this about Dinah, and you think, where the heck are her parents? What are they doing letting her go out like this? There is a complete abdication of parental responsibility here, that Jacob and Leah just let this happen. I mean, they know what Shechem is like. How could they let Dinah do this? For us who are parents of teenagers, our parenting responsibility doesn't decrease just because they now have a car and we don't see them as often and they have more independence. It doesn't decrease, it increases. I mean, too many parents are abdicating responsibility. As long as your children are under 18 and are in your home, you are still in charge. In fact, here's a little word that might be helpful for us as parents to practice. No. No, you can't go to that party. No, you can't wear that revealing outfit to school. No, you can't go to the sleepover at that person's house that I don't know those people. No. I mean, to say that we love our children and then to never set boundaries, that's not love. That's not love. Passivity is not love. Our ultimate job is not to be our child's friend and to be liked by them Our ultimate job is to be their parents. And they may not like it. They may not like you when you set boundaries and curfews and when you say no. But tough. I mean, really tough. We we as parents are the ones to whom God has given the responsibility to help protect our children and to keep them safe. That's our responsibility. Now, let me get really practical. Um, I I don't intend, even though I may offend some people, I don't think so, but let me get really practical here. In my opinion, for a parent to let their teenager have a smartphone without putting appropriate filters on it 
in terms of internet searching and app purchases and without being able to track their child's activity on that phone is incredibly naive and dangerous for our children. We are just asking for our kids to be looking at porn and who knows whatever else. We're just asking for it. I mean, I urge us as parents to be incredibly proactive in this area. We need to be talking with our kids, communicating with them. We need to do whatever we can to help protect them from this stuff. I mean, think about this. What, what would you have done at 14 years old with a smartphone that had full access to the internet and no one was watching? What would you have done? That should scare any of us into doing something and being proactive because we know what we would be doing. And we wouldn't be talking to our parents about it. There, there are parental control features on phones where you can control app purchases. We need, we need to know about those and, 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 and get those things on phones. There, there are apps you can put on your child's phone that will enable you, a, a, their phone, their iPad, their iPod, whatever it happens to be, iTouch, whatever. There are apps you can put on there that can enable them to search the internet through that particular app, but then you get a report of everywhere they've gone, every site they've been to. One such app, let me just remember, uh, mention it here. You can write this down, parents. It's a great app. It's called MobiSip. You can write that down. It's mobisip.com. It's like five bucks if you get the full, you know, featured one. And you can, you can get reports emailed to you. You can set up filters, all sorts of things on phones, any device. I strongly recommend you checking that out. In terms of television and computer viewing in our home, there are filters, there are controls that are a must in our homes. Again, to be passive about this stuff as parents, to just assume our children are doing okay with this stuff, that is to abdicate our responsibility as parents. We need to be protecting our children. Our homes need to be a safe place for our children. And what ends up happening is our, children's are, the, our children are the ones who, who will suffer. They may not think they're suffering, but it will impact them Years to come. The story only gets worse, if you can believe that. Verse 5, when Jacob heard that his daughter Dinah had been defiled, his sons were in the fields with his livestock, so he did nothing about it until they came home. Are you kidding me? Jacob hears that his daughter was raped and he does nothing in fact, we find out later in the story that Shechem actually kept Dinah with him. He rapes her and then he keeps her in his home. And Jacob does nothing. He doesn't go to find his daughter. He doesn't try to get her out of that situation. He does nothing. In terms of worldliness, when we choose passivity, we lose big time, and our family loses big time. Some of us have been passive for way too long. We have, we, we have sat back and allowed the world to go after our children, to go after our families, to go after our own lives. When is enough enough? 
when is enough enough? When do we take a stand for God? When do we take a stand for righteousness? When do we have hard conversations, open conversations? When do we set boundaries? When do we do, 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 when we, when do, we do something to resist the world's influence, influences? Back to the story, verse 6. Then Shechem's father, Hamor, went out to talk with Jacob. Meanwhile, Jacob's sons had come in from the fields as soon as they heard what had happened. They were shocked and furious because Shechem had done an outrageous thing in Israel by sleeping with Jacob's daughter, a thing that should not be done. Finally, we have someone who is willing to break out of the passivity and say, This is wrong. This is wrong. Dinah's brothers are furious. They are angry that she has been violated in this way. And it's finally, it's good to finally see some moral indignation here. But unfortunately, it goes south in a hurry, which reminds us, you know, when a parent is passive, the children will step up and take charge, often in unhealthy ways. That's what happens here. Shechem, along with his dad, his dad, it says in the text later, it says Shechem came along with him to talk to Jacob and his sons. And I'm going to summarize here because we don't have time to read all this text, but I'll summarize. He basically, Shechem basically says to, the, <clears throat> to Jacob and the sons, we'll give you whatever you want if you'll give Dinah to me. And then we can start intermarrying and we can start doing business together which only makes the sons matter because there is no repentance about the rape. He never apologizes. There, there is no apology. This is, it's a business transaction. It's how he's treating it. He's treating Dinah like a prostitute. It makes them matter. So the sons say, hey, we, we can't enter into an agreement like that with you. You know, we're, we're God's people. You know, you, we, we, we can't do that with a, with a pagan nation such as yourselves. But... If all the men in your town are willing to be circumcised, we'll agree to this deal. A circumcision was at that time the sign of God's covenant with the nation of Israel. He had Abraham circumcised. It was a sign of the covenant. Okay. So Hamor and, and Shechem go back to the men of their town and they pitch the proposal, which would have been an interesting thing to witness, right? They pitch the proposal, but what's fascinating is to notice how they pitch this. They tell the men of the city, look, if we do this, we're going to get rich. You see, their livestock and their possessions will eventually become ours. We're going to get their women. I mean, circumcision is a small price to pay for what we're going to get in this deal. That's what they say. Again, this is a picture of how the world works, right? Of how worldliness works. It, it promises us wonderful things. Hey, let's do a deal. It'll be great for you. And then in the back room, they're saying, we're going to get everything they have. Worldliness promises us wonderful things, but the, but it, the reality is it is intent upon, its intent is to, to control and destroy us. It just doesn't tell us that to our face. So all the men agree to be circumcised immediately. Now remember, you got to know this. Uh, this would not have been a, uh, you know, a quick surgical procedure with anesthesia, okay? We're talking knives and infection and blood and lots of pain, okay? Verse 25. Three days later, while all of them were still in pain, 
Two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and attacked the unsuspecting city, killing every male. They put Hamor and his son Shechem to the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and left. And then we read that the other sons, they sort of sweep in and they take all the wealth and the women and the children as plunder. So notice what's just happened. The sons of Jacob have become the very jerks that they were upset with. That's what's happened. They are now using ruthless power and violence to exact revenge. The whole thing is a mess. <laughs> it is a mess. It's what happens when worldliness goes amok. It all, and it, remember, it all started with Jacob, who out of a desire for comfort and security, compromised. Almost obedience. He settled for less than what God wanted. And then through naivete and passivity, the world began to exert its harmful influences. In the end, there was destruction everywhere. Now, if this was the end of the story, it would be pretty depressing, and it wouldn't give us much help in the way of a different pathway, but something happens in the aftermath of this whole episode. Look with me at Genesis 35, beginning in verse 1. Then God said to Jacob, go up to Bethel and settle there and build an altar there to God who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. This is so powerful. In the midst of the devastation wrought by the worldliness all around them, God continues to pursue his covenant people. He says to Jacob, hey, let's hit the restart button here. I want you to go back to the place we had initially agreed upon. <laughs> go to Bethel. I mean, this is amazing when you think about it. Here is Jacob, who is a total failure in this story. There is nothing redemptive in this story about Jacob and his response. Total failure, and yet God comes to him and speaks to him, inviting him to get up and recommit himself to a godly life. You know, that's what God does for all of us in the midst of our worldliness, in the midst of our defilement. I mean, let's, let's be honest. All of us here make decisions and have made decisions that result in us being polluted and defiled by the world. We do. We've done that. We do that. It happens. But when it does, when it does, don't believe the lie that God has somehow removed himself from you. That because you did that, he doesn't like you anymore. He doesn't want to be near you anymore. You're a lost cause. Don't believe it if that's what you're hearing because it's not true. God continually extends his grace and his presence to us. How do I know? That's what the cross of Christ is all about. It wasn't about us impressing God with our good deeds, was it? No, Jesus took the price. He paid the price for our sin. The cross of Christ makes sure there is no barrier between us and God forever. He is pursuing you and me with a passionate love, and he never stops pursuing us. But that love, very important, that love is not content to just leave us in our worldliness. 
It's not content. He loves us too much to do that. It moves us to a particular response, which is what we see from Jacob. God's continual love results in something changing in Jacob's heart. That's what God's love does in our hearts when we really experience it. It results in a particular action. Up to this point, Jacob's been passive, right? It's all we've seen is passivity. But now he takes action. Look at this. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Get rid of the foreign gods you have with you and purify yourselves and change your clothes. Then come, let us go up to Bethel where I will build an altar to God who answered me in the day of my distress and who has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods they, have, they had and the rings in their ears and Jacob buried them under the oak at Shechem. Jacob and all the people with him came to Luz, that is Bethel, in the land of Canaan. There he built an altar and he called the place El Bethel because it was there that God revealed himself to him when he was fleeing from his brother. So Jacob gathers his family all together and he says to them, get rid of your idols, purify yourselves, change your clothes. What he's doing here is calling them to repentance. He's calling them to repentance, to take specific steps of repentance. This, folks, this is the key. This is the foundational key here to breaking the power of worldliness in our lives. It has to begin here with repentance. So what is repentance? Well, the, the first step of repentance is admitting the truth, right? Looking honestly at where worldliness is creeping into our lives, Jacob says, get rid of your idols. That's calling it what it is, idolatry. That's an honest look at what's going on. And repentance involves an honest look at where worldliness is creeping into our lives. Where, where the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is where those things are taking hold in our lives. It's an honest look. Where are you and I compromising? Where are we being passive? Where are we being naive about the things of the world? Are we willing to specifically admit where we're allowing ourselves to be defiled? This is a tough, tough thing because a lot of times, just in our society, especially there's a lethargy, even spiritually in the church, there's a lethargy that just kind of settles. Everyone does it. Everyone has this in their home. Everyone's doing this. There's just a lethargy that settles in and it's not of God. Repentance is willing to look and honestly admit this is going on. I'm being defiled here. I'm letting worldliness in here. This is a huge step. It is, this is such an important step because it can then begin to break up the iceberg in our hearts. That's really what worldliness, it just kind of settles into our lives like an iceberg. It's just not moving. Repentance is what breaks that up and allows world, the, 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 breaks up the worldliness in that kind of, that's kind of settled in. Repentance starts to break that up so, so movement can happen. But there's another aspect of repentance that we see here. It's more than just a prayer of confession. Yeah, sorry, Lord. It's more than that. Jacob had them take their idols and bury them. You know, some of us, have been confessing a sin over and over and over again. And God is saying to us, why haven't you just gotten rid of that? You've been confessing the sin forever. Why haven't you just gotten rid of that thing? Why haven't you removed that thing that continues to lead you into sin? So what if everyone else has one? Is it worth it 
If all it does is lead you down a path that you and I both know doesn't bring life, is it really worth that? Remember what Jesus said about lust? He said, if your right eye causes you to sin, cut it out. And his point was not to literally gouge out our eyes. His point was remove whatever needs to be removed in order for you to follow me. And it may be hard to remove it, but remove it. Repentance is serious stuff. It's more than a casual, oops, sorry, Lord. Try to do better. Repentance is to see our sin the way God does and then to turn from it. To turn from it. Okay, but repentance is only part of the response, of a godly response. It's the foundation. It's only part, though. It, and this is very important because it, it, it is repentance that then leads us to passionately pursue God afresh. And that's what's happening in this story. They go back to Bethel. The word Bethel means house of God. And Jacob builds an altar there, this sacred place to meet with God. I mean, that's the end game. We don't, we don't repent for repentance sake. We repent so that our hearts are free to pursue God, to worship him, and to seek him afresh. You see, this is the antidote to worldliness. It's having a passionate love relationship with Jesus where we are pursuing him earnestly. Because I know, we've all been there a lot of times, I know this, a lot of times when we hear messages like this, the focus is, on, is, is, is solely on repentance, of, repenting of worldliness. Get rid of it. It's all about no, no, no. Say no, no, no. It feels burdensome. It feels heavy. But that is to miss the absolute joy of holiness. Holiness is not a burden. It, it, it's, holiness is not primarily about saying no to the world. It's about saying yes to Jesus. Holiness is not primarily about saying no, 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 no to the world, and that's all it's about. No, just keep resisting, keep resisting. No, it's about saying yes to Jesus. It is an awesome invitation to experience a joy-filled, life-giving, passionate love relationship with Jesus. Authentic repentance awakens us to the reality of a dynamic love relationship with Jesus. So let me just ask, how is God calling you to respond to this message, to his message in this text? How is God calling you to respond and me to respond? Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, I pray you would come right now. I pray the lethargy in the name of Jesus would lift. The lethargy that is settled into our lives that so often settles in and says, ah, it's okay, it's no big deal, that almost obedient stuff, I pray it would lift. The fog would be removed and that our hearts would be open before you right now. And in that spirit, let me just encourage you, just in the quiet of your heart before the Lord, this is between you and the Lord, Where has worldliness crept in to your life or your family or your marriage? 
Are there places where you're compromising and you know it? God has, you know what God wants you to do and you're settling for 80%. Are there places where you have been naive, following the crowd, placing yourself in situations you know are not going to be helpful? Are there places where you've been passive? Maybe as a parent, you've been passive. Repentance means just having an honest look and admitting that to the Lord. So let's just take a moment here and just admit this to the Lord, specifically in the quiet of your heart, whatever it is. Maybe it's multiple things. Admit it. This is a huge first step. I'm just hearing the phrase reading material. So maybe if that resonates with you, some of us here, were some of the things we're reading are not helpful and we know it, but we just continue. Let's just take these moments here and just confess that. Whatever it happens to be, confess it to the Lord. And I think, I'm thankful, Lord, that because of the cross, I can declare forgiveness, that you, you, you are forgiven. If you've confessed your sin, you are forgiven. But that's not the only part of repentance. Remember, God's love is pursuing us. He wants so much more for you and me. He wants us to walk according to his ways and pursue this passionate relationship. And these other things just rob us of that. They steal our heart away from him so we don't even want to follow him. So this confession is important, but it also, repentance also looks like getting, getting rid of things, turning away. It's a 180 degree turn. And let me just ask, is there anything that the Spirit is saying you need to get rid of? For your children, for you. If so, just tell the Lord, Lord, I need courage, Lord, to do this, to have this conversation with my teenager, to get informed about the, the devices they have and find out some more about that. I, I need to stop being passive. I need to take action here. Or I need to get rid of this. I need to put a filter on my computer. I need to get rid of this thing. Lord, whatever it is, Holy Spirit, would you show us what that, those steps of repentance look like? These things that are keeping us from pursuing you. And I just pray for the courage, Lord. It is so hard in this society. It's so hard to be a parent. Would you give us courage? to not be passive in our home, that our home would be an incredibly safe place for our children 
in terms of all the access points, computer, television, cell phones, iPods, all of it, Lord, that we would have the courage to not abdicate responsibility, but to have conversations, to take, to say no when we need to say no. Let's pray for those of us parents here. And for all of us, Lord, help us. Give us the courage to take these steps. And Lord, I thank you right now. I thank you that you're going to continue to speak to us. And I thank you that the end game is not repentance. Repentance frees us to pursue you with all of our heart. Where now that these things that were holding us back and, and stealing our desires and all of those things, they're, they're, they're cut. And our hearts are free to worship you. And I want to pray for that. I want to pray for that right now as, as, as we're going to spend some time here just worshiping you. That you would set us free to do that. <laughs> We, we've repented and we, we've prayed to you. Now, Lord, we, we just want to pursue you. We want to run after you. We want to seek you. We want to open our heart afresh to your love and praise you and acknowledge that our lives, we want to be aligned with you and your purposes and, and your holiness. So thank you that holiness is not about saying no to the world. It's about saying yes to you. And that's what we want. We want you. So come, Holy Spirit, even in this time of worship, be speaking to us. If repentance needs to continue to happen, let that happen, Lord. Just do your thing here. Stir in us. Do an amazing work in us. Stir in us, Holy Spirit. I want to encourage us. Um, we're going to enter into this time of worship and and we're just going to open it up. You may, want, you may prefer just to remain seated, and that's fine. If God is still speaking to you, you, you may want to stand. You may want to come up and kneel at the altar and just spend some time on your face before the Lord. We have intercessors available. They're around the side of the, 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 the room here wearing red lanyards. Maybe you just want to go have someone pray for you. Confess something and just have someone pray for you. The Bible says confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you may be healed. Maybe there's some breakthrough God wants to bring as you come to another brother or sister and say, man, I just need to confess this. And would you pray with me? So Holy Spirit, do what you want to do right now. We welcome you just to come. Thank you, Lord. Again, I don't want you to feel weird about standing up if other people are be seated. Don't worry about it. There's a freedom here. Let's just be in the Lord's presence in these moments.